especially on this week of the... I think that we like... There's something in us, there's something way we're created or our hearts are bent towards a good reconciliation story when we see... Um, people coming together. We love to hear stories about against all odds, these people have figured it out or they've come together, they've reconciled or something along those lines. And for some reason this week, my mind instantly went to what we see go on on playgrounds all across America and I'm sure around the world, which is just some kid's going to be off on his own. Some kid's going to be lonely. Some people for whatever, some kid for whatever reason isn't with the crowd. And uh, we as adults, we see that we're like, it's so senseless, right? We're going to grow up and get over those things that separated us as kids. And usually it's the dumbest of things that that a, a class would kind of say, we're not hanging out with him or her because of. And it's the dumbest of things. And those people will grow up to be a little bit shameful of the way that they treated somebody else. And so there's this idea of when we see distance or separation or segregation, we go, what's the Why? How did we get to this point or why can't someone just fix this? And there's a yearning in us that just wants us to take like adults do with children and say, get over your stuff and get along. It doesn't make any sense. You're wasting time. You're making somebody feel worse or something. It's simple for us. These solutions, aren't they? We look at them from a, a higher perch and we say, it's easy. Tweak this, fix that, get over this and you're going to be okay. Until we get in the midst of that separation or that segregation, when it's our feelings that have been cut down, when it's our distance that has been created, we have a tendency to say, it's not so easy. I'm going to need some time to heal. I'm going to need a strategy to get through to that other person. They've shut me off. They've cut me off or something. And so when we're in the midst of that struggle, the the solution isn't as easy as just get over it and get along. It's not as easy as we adults have a tendency to make it for our kids. Now, fortunately, our kids are a little bit simpler in the way that they approach things, and they're a little quicker to forgive and a little quicker to include. Just heard a great story about it this morning where one kid saw somebody else not playing and so kind of went out of their way to welcome them on. The parents said, well, what was his name? I don't know. Didn't come up. Didn't matter. You know, he wasn't playing, and so we made sure that he was playing. It's a little bit easier, a little bit simpler as kids, but the principle is the same. The gospel at its core is a story of inclusion. It takes the outsider and welcomes them into the fold. It moves the person who is isolated from all of the promises and the blessings and the, and the, and the inheritance that comes with being in Christ outside of that and welcomes that person in, brings them into the center. The gospel is so countercultural in that it doesn't rely on just mere sentiments. Can't you guys just get along? Can't you just figure it out? Can't you get over your stuff and just make it happen? Or as we often hear the phrase, do better. It's not just a command we can put on these things. That isn't what leads to that healing of that separation. More than just imitation, which seems to be the only trick we have in our bag as a culture, we got to copy that movement. We got to do that piece thing. We got to wear that t-shirt rather than just offering empty sentiments of imitation. The message of the cross creates transformation. That's where healing and real unity, which is the theme of our study in the book of Ephesians starts to play out. So with that in mind, we're going to catch up. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter two, and we're going to start in verse 11. We're covering some new territory and moving forward. After a long season of being away from this book, 
And last week, we were able to dive back in and do a little bit of review of chapter 2. So we're just going to pick up in verse 11 and take the next couple of paragraphs piece by piece. So Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, and as we said, he had a broader audience in mind. It wasn't just the people huddled in one location that, that there's a good chance that this letter was going to start going out. And so what he was writing is, this is what I want church is to care about. This is what I want church as, not just Ephesus, to really kind of see as the core of who we're supposed to be. So he says in verse 11, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is the so-called, I'm going to put so-called in there. Some of your translations may say that the so-called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated. From the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is a terribly bleak couple of of, uh, verses here. Paul is bringing their remembrance low. He's like, hey, remember, wasn't all rosy, was it? You're a part of this community now and things are going okay. And I'm writing to you from, even though I'm writing to you from prison, I'm writing from a place of encouragement and hearing of great things going on in this church and and all these kinds of things. But remember, Gentiles, those are the non-Jews. Remember that it wasn't always like that. We have to be careful Not to be like the adults who minimize the squabbles of children and make it sound like we can just get over our stuff just by snapping our fingers. We have to be careful not to minimize the tension that this passage is exposing. If we do, we're going to miss the power of what the cross of Christ has accomplished for all of us. There would be Many pulpits, not trying to separate us like somehow we get it. There's a lot of gospel preaching pulpits who understand the thrust of this passage. But there are just as many, if not more pulpits that would take this passage and water it down to some form of imitation. We would say something like, now Jesus was kind to outsiders, you go be the same. If someone doesn't look like you, sound like you, you know, think like you or something like that, you go out and just open your arms to them. Now I'm going to say that is one of the important applications of this text. But Paul didn't write these things just to say, Jesus did something good. You and I go do something just like him. He's exposing the fact that Jesus did something that only Jesus could do. And if he hadn't done what he did, then we would never experience this unity that he's trying to develop in the church. In order to get there, I will admit to you that Paul's tone seems a little bit harsh and and he's singling out these people. Remember, there's like a room full of Jews and non-Jews and he's kind of scolding, not really scolding because they're currently in this bad way. But he's saying, I remember you Gentiles, you weren't always part of the club, so you better appreciate this. Sounds a little bit harsh. Gentiles look around going, what did we do to him? But that isn't the that isn't the tone. That isn't the point. The reason why we might hear that or see that in the text is because our world, I keep saying like our culture, has lost the will to engage in truth. So we've forgotten the art of exposing what's true in order to build upon that with what's hopeful. If we skip the truth, then we don't really have any hope to rely on. Or I could put it this way, you won't experience any real transformation apart from an honest assessment. And Paul is taking the time and saying, now remember, let's take an honest deep dive. Remember what it was like before you knew Jesus? 
the encouragement for us coming out of this, because again, as Gentiles, we're going to see this is us. This is us apart from Christ. Every time he says you Gentiles, he's saying you outsiders. This is who we were outside of the plan of salvation until we received it. So it's important that you and I face the truth of who we were before Jesus. That's why he says, remember, we often want to forget the past. We often want to move beyond the bad memories that haunt us and find us and kind of hold us down. And we say, what good is there? I just wish I could erase the memories of the past. That's why addictions form with so many people. If I could just get over the feeling of remembering who I am or not liking who I am or something along those lines. But Paul is saying, remember, go back to this. He is exposing for us. He's pointing out to us that there's beauty in the contrast. You don't know what's good until you learn to recognize what's bad. And this is us. You and I were outsiders looking in. Paul uses some phrases that were being thrown around regularly in that day. He says, you Gentiles, the uncircumcision, that's what they were called by the so-called circumcision. That was the external marker, if you will, of we are of the Jewish heritage. We are of the faith that serves the one true God. And you poor wretches over there, you don't practice this. So, oh yeah, those are the uncircumcised. But what Paul is doing by saying, but you're being picked on by the so-called circumcision is he's exposing, look, everyone's just putting their hope in something of the flesh, something made by hands as opposed to what God is really about and what he's really doing. So he said, for so long, this cultural tension and these labels that we are throwing at each other became the source of inner war and conflict. And he's actually belittling the mindset that was looking down on them at the same time. This is an important concept as we go through the letter, because we're going to get through some chapters. Right now, we're building a theological foundation, and then somewhere around the half way mark of the book it's going to get very practical it's an instruction as far as if you're going to be a unified church a unified society these are the ways that you're going about doing it these are the expectations that the gospel lays on us in order for us to do more than just get along but to live together in unity and so paul is going to say some very direct and difficult things for an individual to hear but here's what i want to give you as a bit of a clue and i hope i can explain this but He's also writing things so that the other person who would normally feel justified in their position hears that and goes, oh, that's right. I got to treat them differently. The old me would hear somebody scolding somebody and say, that's right. You give it to them. They deserve that. They're the uncircumcised. But then Paul's also writing saying, I know you've been carrying that label by the so-called circumcised. And they go, oh, wait a second. I didn't know he was hitting on us, too. He's going to be doing this. He's going to be talking to wives and he's going to be sharing some very difficult instruction for wives. But as he's doing it, he is hammering the husbands of that culture going, well, I didn't really know I was supposed to look at them that way too. He's sharing instruction that as we look at it in isolation, we hear it in modern cultural terms. We go, well, he's just picking on people, but he's also putting down the offender so he can level the playing field. All right, like I said, I hope that that was an explanation. I I know what I'm trying to say. I just don't know if I can get it out of my mouth the right way. At the time, this hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles was at a fever pitch. 
It's something that we can't quite appreciate because we think of that, that segregation, distance, and, and separation, and everything is just getting worse and worse and worse. But at the time, it was ridiculous. The Jews had a, um, a, a mindset for the Gentiles. They said, well, God birthed uh, Gentiles just so he could have fuel for the fires of hell. It was unlawful in terms of their kind of cultural law and things that they put together that the Jews could help a Gentile woman in labor. It was unlawful. You can't aid the birth of a Gentile because you're adding to the problem. You're welcoming one of those into the world. Don't help that out. If a woman, a Jewish woman married a Gentile, the family instantly held a funeral for the daughter. You're dead to us. You've walked away. Can I, can I just point out that I know that our religious backgrounds are a huge part of our, our culture and our family. And when we come to Christ, sometimes we say, I don't know, or I want to come to Christ. I'm like, I don't know if I could, I can say, yeah, I'm following Jesus because of what my family will think and do. Can you, can you relate it all to some of this pressure that these people were under? Could you imagine being a Gentile and starting to follow, follow what was the, the Jewish Messiah? These people hate us and you're going to follow their, their king. Talk about feeling some family persecution. But what had grown, what had started to happen is all of these distinctions and these privileges that God had given the Jewish people were starting to become something of, of a source of their pride. They would look down on the Gentiles. They would come up with these crazy statements and look down at them for, for, um, for all that they uh, were causing, they thought, in the world. This is what MacArthur says about the, the tone that's going on here. And I think this is very instructive for us from a, from a big sweep theological perspective in the scriptures. He says, God made Israel distinct for two reasons. Perhaps you've been wondering what some of these reasons are. Why would God choose Israel? What was he thinking? What was he doing? Were they better than everybody else? What was going on? God made Israel distinct. That means holy or set apart for two reasons. First, he wanted the world to see and notice them, to realize that they did not live and act like other men. Second, he made them so distinct that they would never be amalgamated with other people's. Those distinctions, like the special blessings God gave them, were intended to be a tool for witness. It was supposed to be an advertisement of God's goodness to a people. But Israel continually perverted them into a source for pride, isolation, and self-glory. This hostility, this lobbing of bombs, figuratively speaking, and of course we know even literally speaking today, there was great hostility on both sides. The Jews were always being persecuted. As we know throughout history, they've been horrifically persecuted just for being Jewish. And this constant attacking back and forth, this separation is such a great gulf between the two peoples that somebody just coming in and say, can't you just get over yourselves? How many peace accords have been written for the Middle East? How many attempts to just make it better and make these people get along have blown up in our face? It just doesn't work. You can't just tell people to get along. That's what is as noble as the idea is. And I'm not against all efforts along these lines, but peace marches by themselves are mere sentiment. I heard of one in particular in L.A. back in the late 80s where people were leaving from L.A. to go somewhere. I don't even know how far they were going to get. There was 1,200 people that were going to march for the cause of peace. 
And so in the early stages, they're motivated, they're, they're moved, they're feeling the sense of community and like, we're going, we're going to, it's going to happen. 120 miles in, which is no small distance, but still 120 miles in, the whole thing falls apart. They started noticing, well, you're not marching like we are. You just jumped in your car. You followed us in your car. You're not legit. Or you're not voting like I'm voting. And they started fighting within each other. They're supposed to be tacking something out there to create peace. And they're protesting against it. And they can't even get along internally. And the whole thing falls apart. Lasting peace is hard fought and is therefore hard won. We were outsiders looking in. We were so removed from the situation. There was no way that someone could just snap their fingers and let us in. It's not the way it would happen. Paul goes on to say that we were separated from even the mere atmosphere of salvation. He said in verse 12, he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. He's not saying you are just a stranger to the people. The whole idea of God sending salvation through a Messiah that the, that the generations had hope in that he was coming was completely removed from the Gentiles. They're like, the what? What are you talking about? Paul says you were so far outside, you didn't even know salvation was coming. They were completely removed from the atmosphere of you knowing about a Savior. Then he says something really interesting here in a society that is loaded with gods that has that it was often said that there is easier to find a God in Greece than it is a man. A, a society that was loaded with gods, he says, you are without God in the world. They had too many gods to count, and yet none of them were leading them any closer to the one true God. We need to take note of that as we continue to hear more and more throughout our days that all roads lead to the same God. He says, no, no, you had a lot of different avenues and, and byways and workarounds and all this kind of stuff, and none of them were leading you to the one true God. Paul on record says there aren't multiple ways to the same God. And then he gives us a clue. He says that obsession with all of those gods created an emptiness and says that they were hopeless without him. Would it surprise you to know that the first century, the one in which Paul is writing and the culture that is that is um, uh, happening then was one of the most suicidal in our history? We think of it as being just a modern problem or, or a, a, re, a relationship to some of the medications and things that we have. And all those things might be true. But what was really happening is the more they chased answers and the more that they chased peace, the more that they chased security, the more they chased promise, they came up empty and it started breaking their hearts. And I'm sure affecting their psyche. And they started saying, what hope is there to go forward We'd have to ask ourselves the question right now as we're thinking about it. What is the thing? Who is the person that I am counting on for fulfillment right now? We can say the bigger answer is, well, I'm trusting in Jesus and I'm relying on God. How much did the thing or the person affect you this week? Either you could have it, you couldn't have it. It let you down. It eluded you. What is it? 
What is the thing or who is the person that you are counting on for fulfillment right now? Is it uh, satisfaction in your job? Is it the pursuit of sex and satisfaction that way? Is it the relationship that you want to establish or the one that's letting you down? Is it a show or some form of entertainment? Is it a game you get to play? It is a sport you participate in? All of these things, and may I add to you that this is not a list of evil negative things. But what happens is we make even the good things that God has given us to enjoy in life, we've, been, we've made them our obsession. We've made them our be-all, end-all. So what makes us think that it's finally going to work this time? That whatever pinnacle I can achieve, whatever experience I can have, finally fulfills me. This is what's going on in the first century. They're saying, what's the point of going on? And so they quit and they check out early. One of the big heartbreaks of this statement that Paul is making here is it's on the heels of us celebrating all the amazing things that he gave us, that God gave us in Christ. Paul has just spelled out, it's, we have this treasure, we have this great wealth of all of the things that come to the believer, the follower of Christ, just simply by humbling ourselves and receiving it. And he says, and now look at the desolation of those that don't have it. We often go through this in America, don't we? We see starvation around the world and we're like, doesn't make sense to us. It's more heartbreaking knowing that I have too much and they don't have enough. This is what Paul's helping us see about the things of Christ. So to summarize this very bleak and, and heavy statement is that the Gentiles, us, were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. It wasn't pretty. The situation was too dire to just throw a slogan at it or organize a march. These things ought not be, and we're going to stand up against it. We needed a different rescue. So he says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, that were is a very hopeful word, isn't it? There's history to this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. So he had to show the negative state of where they were. He had to expose the bleakness of their condition in order to properly celebrate the good that is already, that is taking place in Christ. So the, the instruction for us is to embrace this, to, to see and to remember all that we were before Christ so that we can embrace the truth of what Jesus has done for us. We were welcomed in. He said that we were who are far off were brought near. You think about the impact that's ever had on your life. Somebody just kind of physically bringing you near. I have several moments in my life where there wasn't anything more important that I needed to experience in that moment than someone just sitting next to me or coming up and putting an arm around my shoulder. Some of the most crucial and, and bleakest moments in my life, somebody just made their presence felt and that was enough. So I love Paul's phrase here. You used to be really far off. You used to be so far away that he pulled you in and he brought you near. The story is often told as I'm reading all about this passage and everything. I kept seeing this little illustration and I thought, well, it's kind of like a straw man. Like it only happened once. But so many people are referencing it to, to, to show what was really going on at the time where a Gentile woman came knocking on the door of a temple and was majorly destitute. She was really needing refuge and really needing help. But because she was a Gentile, the rabbi said, no, you're not welcome here. 
There's not a lot to that story, is there? There's not a lot of details, not a lot of flavor or color. But it just exposes the heart of the time. Because you're an outsider, you're not welcomed in. They were missing the message that God had intended all along for making the people of Israel distinct so that they would be that beacon. They would be that ray of hope to the rest of the world. They looked at it as a source of being just secluded, segregated. We've got our God. You guys, good luck with all of that. So how is being made, how is being brought near made possible? He says it's in a person. It's in Christ. And there's an integration that happens into the faith. There's, there's, um, there's this thing that God is doing through the person of Christ that welcomes us into the mode of this worship. As opposed to it just being, well, I guess, I guess you can come in, get warm or something, I guess. No, it's an integration into the family. Hey, let me show you where this is. Let me show you the kitchen. Do you need a seat? Hey, can I get you something for your feet? There's an integration that God was putting in motion. Those of you that have come into it, how many of you have ever been to a church for the first time? Everybody should say yes, unless you were born in this room. And I wasn't aware of that, so we're going to have to do a better... Anyway... You've all been a first timer somewhere. Some of you have been a first timer here really recently. And part of the difficulty that we have as someone who's been here, I feel like I've been here my whole life. I forget what it's like to be a first timer somewhere. I forget how strange it is, what kind of tensions are going on inside of somebody's soul to say, I don't know if they'll accept me. I don't know if I know how to do things like them. I don't know if I'm going to stand out like a sore thumb, if they'll welcome me. There's all that felt tension. There's that separation that happens. It's part of the human experience, whether you're talking about in the first century or in 2022. This is why I want to just kind of give a commercial for something that Pastor Tom mentioned earlier when he said that we have openings in first impression ministry. Sometimes when we talk about opportunities to be involved in the church, we have a tendency to think either someone else will get around to it or it's a way for me to be involved and they're just trying to make sure I'm happy and, and engaged and don't go anywhere and stuff like that. And that's all part of it and that's all true. But the reality is, is we have no idea. I would love to ask for a show of hands, but I won't put people on the spot. How many of you made up your mind that this was the church that you were going to give a shot with within the first two or three minutes of you walking through the door? I, I got 45 or so minutes before I can offend people and scare them away. We've set it up just like that. They were like, we got to hide Brent way in the back so we can actually get some stuff, let them hear some really great music and be comfortable in their seats before he gets up and pushes them all away. This, so, so it isn't about what I'm saying necessarily. We try to elevate the word of God and we're here to worship and all of those things come into the mix. But I'm talking about that awkwardness or that tension. Like, can I, can I be a part of this place? I don't, I don't know how many times I've had a, car, a conversation with people who just made up the mind because of the size of the building and the location that they weren't going to be able to make it fit. And they were surprised as they gave it a chance how welcoming the people were and brought them in. I, I'm, I'm advertising first impressions for you, not only because there's a need. I saw people serving double duty today in certain jobs and things. And I'm thinking, man, a church our size, that shouldn't be. But I don't want to browbeat it. I want to spell it, spell it out from a standpoint of what the opportunity is. That people come into this, and I hear so often, it's the most welcoming place I've ever been in all my life. And, and so many of our first impression greeters and think, think that all they're doing is handing out a piece of paper saying, good morning, 
Good morning. Good morning. You have no idea how many places won't even acknowledge you walking in. And I'm not just talking about churches. I just mean in our society, we're isolated. We're looking down at our shoes. We're still texting and everything. Somebody locking eyes with you and saying, I notice you exist is huge. We've been very, very wounded in our society, especially over the last couple of years. Somebody locking eyes on you and saying, good morning. I hope you have a great day today. It's incredible. It's moving and inspiring. So please don't look at this as just faith's advertising and opening. And if, hey, if you could just do one more job out of the 20 you're already doing in the church, please take this on. Start to see this as a mission. Start to see this as something I can provide so I can alleviate some of these tensions and these feelings of separation. Like I'm some kind of outsider that's not good enough to be welcomed in. You and I know that that's not the case. But how are we portraying it is the question. At the time... Herod the Great had built a temple that was surrounded by, it was a four and a half foot tall wall that surrounded the whole temple. It was, everything was built in sort of like an elevated place. So everybody around the, the worshiping Jews could see what was going on there. And there was different layers. There's different sections for different people and everything within those walls. But those walls were called a wall of separation. And so you were as a Gentile were able to come up to it. It was just low enough for you to look over with envy going, what are they doing in there? Looks like they're having a great time. Can I come in? When they ask that question, they're greeted with a sign at the entrance that says no foreigner may enter into the bear in the barricade, which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Welcome to church. Can I get you a coffee? This is this is the tone and the tension that was going on. They said, we want you to see it because we want you to envy it, but we're not welcoming you in. It's your fault for not being born like us. What God had intended to serve as a symbol of love and redemption, man had turned into a symbol of segregation. I would put it this way, that grace is constantly threatened when pride is near. So let's continue. Let's finish out our passage here and wind this down. I'm going to read this whole remaining paragraph in one wash. Verse 14, for he himself, we said it was personal. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. You see the imagery now by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself again, one new man in place of the two. So making peace, not just making t-shirts, not just making slogans, not just making marches. He actually was making peace and might reconcile us both Jew, non-Jew, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do you think Paul is just as worked up with God about the segregation and the separation that was forming? He's using such harsh and direct and, and, and expressive terms. Verse 17, and he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. 
You see, our rescue, our great breaker downer, if you will, of the wall of separation is a person. He himself. He, earlier he said the Gentiles had, had, had no hope in the Christ. So it was an impersonal awaiting that, that all of the Jewish people had that one day the Christ, Christ wasn't Jesus's last name, that the Christ, the anointed one, the promised one, the deliverer would come and rescue the people. So they all through the generations waited and waited and waited for him to come. Now Paul says it's personal. He has arrived in the flesh. He has arrived in the person of Jesus from Nazareth. I was working out a little bit of a parable this week. I'm going to take a shot on it here with a little bit of time I have left. Uh, the reason why I emphasize it's a parable and not an illustration is because a parable, you're supposed to cut me some slack. Not all of the details are going to work out to be exactly the, um, the point of the theology of the passage. But I'm hoping to make a couple of points as I tell out this story that I've only been through in my head once. So... Bear with me. If this falls flat, Peter, again, thank you for solid teaching this morning. Worship team, thank you for amazing music. We got something out of today. So I want you to think about two drivers that have one route to go. I'm picturing my route between my house and the church. It's about 20 minute drive in a 45 mile an hour zone. And for whatever reason, it is the route in all of central Maine that everyone's like, I can't go over 45 miles an hour. And I'm sitting there going, I'm trying to be sanctified. I'm trying to live for Jesus. 45 is good because it's the law, right? But as soon as somebody tells me I can't go faster, then it makes me feel like I want to. Everybody goes kind of slow on there. Until every once in a while, you'll hear the revving and the rambling of this massive engine. And it's just going to whip around you and pass you. And in my mind, before I even look in my mirror, I know what it is. It's going to be one of those lifted trucks with 37-inch tires with a couple of exhaust pipes sticking out the type and no less than three flags hanging out the back. And that dude's going to be like, and probably showing me his hands as he's going by, right? On the other hand, because some of you are like, yeah, yeah, those guys, you know, just tearing up the earth and ripping up the pavement and everything. And, and on the other hand, there's that guy who's kind of driving. I'm going to be kind to the Prius owners and call it a smart car because I have some Prius owners in my life that I love. So I'm not going to go there. But let's just talk about the smart car. Think about that little Mr. Bean mobile and stuff like that. Right. And, you know, that person is not only just saving gas, they're saving the planet. Right. And as they're doing it, they're doing it like, you know, they're in that 45 and they might want to go 43, 44, but they just know everyone's right on their bumper. So they're going to at least play along and go the speed limit and move along. It should be the opposite, right? The gas guzzler guy should be doing 45 so he actually can afford it. And then the other person who's getting 58 miles a gallon, gun it. Who cares? Just kidding. Don't take driving advice from the pastor. Both guys keep getting a, a, a stopped and given speeding tickets in this one location on this road to the extent they're like, I wish there was another way around to get to where we need to get. Cause there's this one guy, it's like a speed trap all the time. This cop is there. So both guys are getting frustrated by this. So they eventually start to appeal their tickets and they show up in court the same day. Now, one guy is looking at the, the smart car owner and calling him squeaky clean and squeaky cleans looking at the other guy calling him mud tires. Because they don't get along so well. They represent two very different approaches to being on the road. And, and as they're looking at each other and they're frustrated by each other, they've got their own positions. They have their own histories. They have everything that's been built up to give them that prejudice toward each other. 
So it's squeaky clean's turn to get up before the judge. So he gets up and he, and he says, uh, the judge says to him, do you know why you're here? And he says, well, yeah. He goes, that's why I'm here because the police officer clocked me, he says, at 46 miles an hour. What am I doing here? Like, cut me a break already. And not only that, have I mentioned that the police officer is my cousin. What is my cousin doing stopping me going one mile over the speed limit? And the judge says, well, okay, I understand your plight. I understand this is a rare circumstance and things, but you have to understand something. That cop has been impeccable. He doesn't show any partiality. It's like you're going one mile over or 21 miles over. You're getting stopped. That's just the way he approaches his job. He's a stickler about these things. We can't get him off it. So the uh, squeaky clean goes, well, all right, so what do I owe you and how do I get out of this and everything? They said, well, since you're his cousin, he has made it clear that he wants to reduce all the charges way down to the bare minimum. You get to go to the clerk and pay like 15 bucks and we can get this behind you. And he says, well, it's not what I hoped for, but it's way better than it could have been. Okay, sure. So he goes off and pays his fine. Mud Tires gets up and he gets before the judge. And the judge is like, do you realize why you were here? And they were like, yeah, you know, he goes, I, I, I was told I was clocked at 54 and a 45 and, and he thought I was going reckless or something like that. But you know, I, here's what I want you guys to understand is that I drive a vehicle with a very strong engine. It's a very powerful V8. I just have to touch the gas and it's kind of unpredictable. And then he sits, this cop sits at the bottom of the hill waiting to bust us. So I got down there. I was trying not to, but I mean, it just picked up and it just went and everything. How many of you told this story before, right? And so he's spelling it all out. The judge is unmoved and says, I'm sorry, but my, I, I have utmost faith in that cop that if he saw what he saw and he's reporting it, then I got to hold you to that standard. And so he says, well, so clearly I'm getting a deal too. Maybe not for 15 bucks, but maybe 25. So how do I get hooked up like a uh, squeaky clean over here? And uh, the judge says, oh, I'm sorry that you're the way to do that is to find someone, one of your relatives to become a police officer. Yeah, that's the benefit of you, you know, having someone in the family that's going to help you get off the, the hook a little bit. Now, you're still guilty, but we can get the fines reduced and all this kind of stuff. So obviously, Mud Tires is pretty upset, feels pretty slighted. It only grows his animosity towards squeaky clean even more in those like him. He's getting more and more angry every time he sees squeaky clean type cars on the road and everything. And it's just building up. They're starting to hate each other more and everything. But they keep getting busted. So both squeaky clean and mud tires are back in court again a month later. And the judge is like, how come I can't keep you guys out of a courtroom? Still, it was like, and now it was less than a mile over. The guy was only 0.5 miles over the speed limit squeaky clean was. Still got busted. Mud tires, same thing in there. They're complaining, but now they're starting to feel like they're swimming in the same stew a little bit here. And the judge is saying, look, you guys can't seem to, it's happening month after month after month. You guys can't seem to drive down this road and, and, and obey the law. It seems impossible for you to keep the standard that we've set on that sign. So I've got an option for you. You would have to surrender your keys to us so that we stop seeing in you here, dragging you through this. I can tell you're heartbroken over this. You're mad at us and all this kind of stuff. I have an option for you. I have a driver who has never, ever, ever gone over the speed limit one time. And he drives a community bus and he is welcoming those to get on that bus. And he goes your route and he'll show you how to do it. He'll drive you through there. He passes that cop every day. They wave at each other. No big deal. No violations, no fines but I need you to surrender your keys 
and I need you to get along with one another. You're going to get in that bus. You're going to ride there every day. And if I see all this, you're squeaky clean, you're mud tires, all this kind of stuff, you know? So what they start doing is they say, well, look, I can't afford the fines. I can't take time off from work to be in court all the time or anything. I'll think about it. I'll, and then eventually they surrender to it. They start taking the ride. As the ride's going on, they're starting to realize, hey, we're in the same boat here. We violated perhaps at different levels or we had certain advantages that the other person didn't have. But the reality is we both needed a ride in the bus. The reality is we both couldn't avoid the cop. And that bus is going where we need to go. So why don't we just eat a little pride and let's start to get along with one another. Eventually, over time, they start noticing the events of each other's lives. Hey, I saw that your, you know, your yard got, you know, fixed or something like that. Or what happened to your wife's car? Or hey, did the kids get off to school? And they start sharing life a little bit more. And they find an easier path to do that. Why? Because they're riding on the same bus for all the same reasons. So they've learned to get over some of the tensions and the hostilities and all the things that they had going on in their lives before. Obviously, the metaphor I'm making is quite plain. Jesus is our peace. He's not just our peace because we have a wrecked life and we can go and rest in him and find peace. But he is our peacemaker. He says, I'm driving this bus and those that are welcome, you're welcome to get on. You got to leave your stuff behind. You got to get over yourself. You've got to recognize the fact that you'll never pass that cop without violating that law again. It just isn't possible for you. But if you ride on the bus with me, you let me do the driving. I will take care of that violation. I will prevent you from going down that path anymore. Paul said that Jesus In the person of Jesus, he made us one. He took two individual people, the Jew and the Gentile, and moving them both through their need of needing a payment for their sin, no matter how close they were to the judge, the cousin of the law officer, or how far removed they were, totally outside the the system, they both were carrying a great debt of sin. Because in God's economy, because of his absolute perfection, you violate it even 0.5 miles over the speed limit, you're guilty of being like mud tires. So Jesus instead makes the two of them one man, which we would call a Christian, a Christ one, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of experience, regardless of, of financial standing, regardless of any of the things that we have a tendency to find separation over. Jesus broke down the wall of hostility. He abolished the law. Not that he removed God's moral code, what God cares about. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not cheat. Thou shalt not lie. He didn't abolish those things. He fulfilled those things. But he abolished all of that law that was separating people ceremonially from one another. I'm not clean enough. I didn't, I wasn't born in the right tribe. All these kinds of things. No, he removed all of that so that all could come to Christ in repentance, he reconciled us to God and each other. Now, I want to say, I know we've been emphasizing unity amongst you and I, but isn't it funny how we make that the miracle? Wow, these people are actually getting along. Mud tires and squeaky clean. They actually found a, a life together and everything. It's amazing. You know, that's the miracle. But we don't often stop and think the real miracle is that you and I, pathetic sinners, have been reconciled to the perfection and the beauty Of a holy God. The easy part should be us getting along. The hard part was us getting to be with God. The easy part should be the reconciliation between the human beings. 
Do you remember the hopelessness of your life without Christ? You might say, well, I try not to go back there in my mind. I don't want to relive those days. And I'm certainly not recommending that you dwell there. But do you remember the hopelessness of your life without Christ? Does it cause you to to recount that, to be thankful that that was a before image as opposed to the current one? It's good for us to face the truth of who we were when Christ wasn't in us. It's good for us to go back there from time to time. We need to learn to speak our testimony. Even if we're saying, I'm not really comfortable doing it in front of others and stuff like that. I can speak it out loud before me and my God. And I can rehearse for myself all that God has done. And I offer it up as a prayer to him. And the more I do it, the more I might get comfortable telling somebody else about all that God has done. That I can walk in the beauty of the contrast of the darkness that was in my heart. And now the light that is shining right out of me. Are you in a state of hopelessness and isolation currently? Is any of this resonating with you because you've been down that path of trading in God after God after God and you find this emptiness in your heart just growing and getting stronger? What Jesus is asking you is, are you done chasing empty gods that don't satisfy? Is there a longing going on inside of you to be welcomed in through the gate of separation? It's my prayer that Jesus has made himself plain enough to you that he's the only way through the door. Listen, if you're, if you're not sure what that, um, what that bridge looks like, if you're not even sure how to get through that gate and it's, you know, it's Jesus, it's not complicated. I didn't say it was easy, but it's certainly not complicated. In the quietness of your heart and in the stillness of your spirit, you say, Lord Jesus, I am tired of being far off from you. I know that the reason why I'm far off is because of what I've done, because of who I am, because of how I was, I was born. I was born outside of you and I'm tired of being far off. You said you'd draw me near. You said your sacrifice for my sin. You said your resurrection, your coming back to life would be the thing that could draw me near. That's what I want. I'm asking you, Lord, to do that, to give that to me. Make today the day of your salvation. Make today the day of your reconciliation, of being the outsider who was welcomed onto the playground to join the game with the other kids. Christian, are you practicing peacemaking? Are you walking in the barrier-breaking power of Jesus in hostile situations? Or are you adding bricks to the wall of hostility? You know, this is what I've observed over the last few years where we all have our opinions and we can be brave behind a keyboard and all this kind of stuff. And it's more difficult to be that bold and brave when we're face to face and things. It's interesting to me that the, the closer that you move to Jesus, who is a peacemaker, the closer we move to him and our devotion to him, it actually moves us closer towards our enemies. We haven't been thinking along these lines the last couple of years. We think if I get truth right, then it should should push me further away from the people who aren't practicing truth, who I don't agree with. But if I'm going closer to Jesus in my devotion to him, then the closer my heart moves towards those that I'm fighting with. It's not supposed to be the other way around. This is where our world has steered the church away and the church has allowed its heart to be compromised a little bit. You don't have to compromise truth to love people well. Nowhere is there anybody in, in the gospel saying, just get along. Forget your differences. Our differences matter. 
Our differences came to us from our, our histories or our experiences or any of those kinds of things. It's okay for some aspect of the world saying, celebrate diversity. It's like, yeah, there's a very diverse background of our experiences. But in Christ, all of those uh, diversities go away. They're answered. They're settled. They're united in him. You and I don't have to compromise truth in order to act on love. That's why Jesus said when he was introducing his kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Would you please stand and let's pray together. Lord Jesus, the things that Paul is telling us this morning are difficult. They're charged. They're sensitive. But they're so healing and they're so hopeful, Lord. And so it is on us to move past our cultural sensitivities sometimes or the things that we don't think we can do or should do to find you and to rest in you and to walk in you and to move in your power. Lord, may we as a church continue to reflect this bridge building love, this sacrificial love of Jesus Christ to astound our enemies, to lead the church at large towards unity Lord, so that we can reflect your heart and your character. So thank you, Lord, for calling your people here today. Thank you, Lord, for their patience and their quiet spirit. And thank you, Lord, that they have hearts aflame to learn what you have for them. And I pray that you would only grow it in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.